Please remain standing with me as we turn in God's Word to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We have quite a long passage today, but I'm going to do as I've been doing more recently, uh, split up the reading throughout the the sermon. But first we're going to look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we'll start by just reading verses 8 through 12. We'll be reading by the end of the morning all the way through chapter 6. But just at this time, chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, uh, through 12, if you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 555. I should probably warn you too, we're not going to actually read it all in order, but uh, hit the themes that the passage hits. Let's start here remembering that this is God's Word, and it is worthy of our attention and our belief and our faith. Let's hear God's word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched over by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is the game for a land in every way, a king committed to the cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Since the reading of God's word at this point, let us pray that our God would be pleased to meet us in His Word and speak to us through it this morning. Your Word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet. It is our guide in the dark. It is the wisdom and truth that we follow each day. Your Word is sweeter than honey, and yet it is sharper than swords. Your Word is healing, it is justice, and it is ours to obey. Your Word is our understanding of grace and peace and love. And this is the reason we draw near to it. And so we ask that you would speak to us through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a well-known fact that Drinking seawater can be deadly. And so if you're ever stranded on a life raft or something like that in the middle of the ocean, as you grow thirsty, your temptation is going to be to look at all this water around you and be tempted to drink deeply of that water, thinking that it will quench your growing thirst. But here's the problem. The body needs a certain amount of water to process a certain amount of salt. There's more salt in a cup of water than the water you need to process that salt. And so for every cup of water you drink, you will need more water than you take in. And your thirst will grow and grow and grow until you drink or you die of dehydration. 
the more you drink, the more you think you are solving your problem, the worse you are making things and the more dehydrated you become. And so the water that you think is saving your life will eventually take your life. And there's a great spiritual analogy here. Because each of us is tempted to look for meaning, peace, fulfillment, a sense of of, uh, satisfaction in life. And our temptation is to look for that in things that, like seawater, can only increase our thirst and never satisfy it. The example used in our passage is money or riches. But, of course that we could easily see the same reality in so many other things, really anything that is not the singular, true source of peace, contentment, and fulfillment. Anything that's an imposter will make things worse and not better. And so my hope this morning as we look at this passage in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 is to see that God alone can quench our thirst for meaning and significance in life. God alone can quench that thirst for meaning and significance. We want to first, as we look at this passage, be honest about where we tend to look for fulfillment. And then we want to see how Solomon comes to find a sweet peace in surrendering to the temporary nature of life. And then finally, we want to look at the promises that Jesus makes to those who would place their trust in him. The theme of our whole passage is summed up in chapter 5 verse 10 he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income we know what's going on here people are tempted to seek satisfaction in money they look for it to provide comfort They look for it to provide security. They treat it like a God, placing their hope in it. And the Bible goes so far as to say that that's what money is. It can very quickly become a false God in your life, an idol. So Jesus says you can only serve one master, you can't serve two. And he doesn't say uh, God or a false God, he says God or money. Like all false gods, money makes promises. It whispers promises to those worshipers that would serve it. Money promises to make your life better. Money says that if you would just pursue it with all your heart, it will give you all that you long for. And the fulfillment of those promises that money makes always seems to be in view but just out of reach. I can can see the goal and I'm almost there. I just can't reach it. Just a little bit farther. And every time you think you're close, that you've reached it, it's just a little bit farther away. And you make excuses. You convince yourself. You say something like, evidently I just needed a little bit more than I thought, but I'm close. (laughs) Or, Or what I thought was enough just really wasn't. I didn't realize that there would be these expenses or those expenses. My, my needs have changed. I've bought more things and now I have to have money to maintain those things. I, I didn't think about that. So just a little bit more. 
And as your wealth grows, what you find out is that those who depend upon you increase as well. And so you start to adjust your goals, set new targets, only to have things change again once you reach those goals and those targets. And what's worse is is that the more you make, the more others seem to take from you so that you aren't the one who benefits from your labors. And that's really true in all societies. Much of the worker's wealth passes on to the hands of officials, tax collectors, bureaucracies, governments, which is then taken by those above them and so on. And so the one who really benefits from the work of the farmers is the one who's at the top, the king, the officials, the government, the rulers, the ones with power. And Ecclesiastes says, don't be surprised. This is how it is in all societies because all societies are ruled by sinful people selfishness dwells within all and those in power will use their power to take from those over whom they rule but that's not the only way our passage says that you can lose money There's other ways to lose what you've worked for. And that's what we see in verses 13 through 17. Let me read this. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Here's the reality. You can lose all your money in a single day in a bad business venture. Those who have money know that it only grows if you invest it. But no investment is foolproof. There could be theft. You could invest it with someone who is dishonest. There can be unforeseen circumstances. Markets can change. And when things change, they change fast. And so you could wake up one morning rich beyond all your neighbors, and go to bed that night broke. A lifetime savings can be lost in the blink of an eye. And if your life and your relationships are built around money, when that money disappears, everything else goes with it. Your friends, who loved you only for your money, will abandon you when it's gone. And your days, as verse 17 says, will be filled with pain. And bitterness. But even if you don't lose it all, our passage points out that you can't take it with you. You will leave this world as you entered it, naked and empty handed. 
And so Ecclesiastes, in verse 16, asks the simple question, In death, what gain is there for all your toil? If riches were your pursuit. The first six, I'm sorry, the first uh, seven verses of chapter six press this even deeper. They say, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. What he's saying is, what if you arrive? What if you reach that point, that goal is finally attained, and you have more money than you need, than you could ever dream of spending? You lack nothing. The question Solomon asks is, are you guaranteed the ability to enjoy it? To be fulfilled? To find peace? That there's a difference between obtaining and being at peace and enjoying. Because we tend to think that contentment is simply the consequence of having well, if I had all I wanted, how could I not be content? We believe that if we just have what we want, we will be satisfied. We believe the lie that money has the power to give us peace. But contentment is a gift that God alone can give. And so what if God gave you everything you wanted, but not the contentment with it? Because only the true God can give peace. And so even if you should live 2,000 years and have all the money you could desire, you will not find peace apart from God. Because seeking peace through money is like trying to quench your thirst by drinking seawater. Quenching that thirst is not a matter of having enough time. The more seawater you drink, the worse it becomes. And so it is with trying to find peace in life through the wrong source. But of course, we don't have 2,000 years, do we? And that's what the final few verses of chapter 6 are getting at, verses 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man, while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun?"
This is the undercurrent of this whole book. It's the struggle to come to grips with the fleeting nature of life. Life is short. It's but a breath, a mist, and then it's gone. In fact, that, that verse, I mean, that word that we see repeated over and over, vanity, is really the Hebrew word for breath. It's short, it's, it's, it's a mist, and then it's gone. It's like a vapor. Ecclesiastes is struggling with finding meaning and peace in the midst of a life that will soon pass like a morning mist. And our passage closes with that question. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his breath of a life, which passes like a shadow? Or who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? That's the question that matters. Figuring out what is good for us in the midst of this short life, and more important, seeing beyond the veil of death and asking what lies behind it. And that's what we struggle with, isn't it? The quest for eternity and the shortness of life, the longing for satisfaction and the inability to find it, the ability to be content where we are and not where we think we should be. And in order to resolve this struggle, we need to learn to ask the right questions. And one of those questions is found in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 6. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living Better is the sight of eyes than the wandering of appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. He asks, who's better off? The one who has much and is discontent or the one who has little and has learned to be content? The one who thinks that he can find contentment in acquiring wealth is like a person who thinks that he can shepherd or herd the wind or quench his thirst with seawater. It's a fool's errand. The right question is not how much is enough. The right question is what or who has the power to grant contentment regardless of how much you have. And Solomon actually gave us that answer at the beginning of the, his, of the passage. And in chapter 5, verse 12, he said, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but full but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He says, a good night's sleep is the reward for learning to be content with what you are called to. Solomon sums all this up at the end of chapter 5 in verses 18 through 20. He says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He says, look, you can't 
beat the clock. Thinking you can will only cause pain and despair. The solution to the brevity of life is not to try to conquer it, but to accept it. To surrender to a ticking clock. To make peace with it. If you stop focusing on what you don't have and what you can't do, you'll be freed up to consider and to appreciate what you do have and can do. Such clarity is a gift from God. The one who has it is free to enjoy today because he's not consumed by tomorrow. He can eat and drink and find enjoyment in what he is doing. Now you can hear that. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in what you're doing. And it sounds eerily close to what the Apostle Paul condemns in 1 Corinthians when he says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, let us just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But what Paul was condemning in 1 Corinthians 15, was fatalistic despair that says, since this life is all there is, since you just get one go around and tomorrow's not guaranteed, get as much pleasure out of today as you possibly can because that's all there is. Ecclesiastes is actually saying the opposite. And really, we've turned a major corner in this book. I said when we began that it has three major sections. The first section is frustration with the shortness of life. The second section is surrender to the shortness of life. And that's what we've hit today. Or actually last week a little bit. The final section will actually be finding joy in the shortness of life. The first four chapters lamented how short life is and our inability to escape its trials and its pains and its suffering. We can't conquer mortality. We can't change reality. Neither can we truly escape it with alcohol and pleasure. But chapter 5 last week when we began started by saying that the only way we can learn to work with reality rather than against reality is by surrendering to the true God in worship. Our passage today carries that forward. One of the implications to surrendering to the true God is surrendering to His reality, making peace with the shortness of life. If you understand, if you understand that your goal is not to conquer such brevity, you're free to embrace it. And that's freeing. Because you're no longer striving after an impossible goal. You're no longer trying to trap the wind. The focus in our passage is our attempts to to conquer the shortness of life or find meaning through money, but a whole host of other things could be offered, couldn't they? You might try to do that through pleasure. You might try to find peace or meaning or satisfaction through fame or power through having the perfect family, through being better at some skill than anyone else. 
It doesn't matter where you seek peace and fulfillment. If it is not in knowing God, it is like drinking seawater. It will only increase your thirst and it will never quench it. But there's another reason that Solomon's counsel is not fatalistic. Because he's acknowledging that this life is not all there is. That's what Paul was critiquing. And that's really the question that matters, right? Is this life all there is or is there more? Is there something awaiting us after death? And how do we know? And that's the question that ends our passage. Who can tell a man what will be after his life under the sun? To know that answer, you'd have to have been on the other side of death. And so there is a question. Is there one who has, lit, who has died and lived to tell about it? Is there one? Because if there was, he would be able to answer our questions. What happens after this life under the sun? He would be able to once and for all answer that most pressing question. Do you remember how Jesus described himself in our study in the book of Revelation in chapter 1? He said, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of Hades and death. Jesus has been to the grave and conquered it and raised again. He is the reason that we know that there's more to this life than having as much pleasure as we can because tomorrow will cease to exist. His resurrection assures us that this short life under the sun is not the whole story. Believing it is will only fight against reality, will only lead to frustration, and will never bring contentment and peace. But we have to ask, why did Jesus have to die to answer that question? Surely as God, He knows and has always known what lies beyond the grave, the other side of death. Surely He wasn't going to the grave as a simple fact-finding mission. I've got to know, but don't worry, I'll be back. He went to the cross to deal with our sin and our rebellion. What's interesting is how the Apostle John describes that sin and rebellion in his gospel. He says that it is like a sort of thirst. Like a thirsty person wandering in the wilderness, we long for satisfaction, we long for peace, we long for life. But no matter what we do, we can't quench that thirst because we are sinners and the only thing we have to offer is our sin, the very source of that thirst. And so the more we try to help, the more sin we pour on and that just makes us more and more and more thirsty. So no matter what we do, we will only increase our need. We will only increase our thirst. It will never be quenched and it will never be satisfied. And so while John, in John's gospel, 
While Jesus hung on the cross in our place, he simply said, do you remember what he said in John's Gospel? I thirst. What he was saying was that he was taking on all of our sin and what it deserves. He was taking on our spiritual thirst, everything we had caused by our sin and couldn't satisfy our own. And he says, I'm going to take your thirst, your pain, your sin, your wrath, and I'll thirst in your place. And what did he offer in return? He said he had living water, something that would permanently and completely satisfy our thirst, so that the one who drinks of it will never again. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. Death can strip you naked. It can take your wealth, but it can't take your living water, your eternal life. If you have Jesus, heaven awaits. And that means that you can enjoy this life because you're not trying to wring something out of it that it doesn't have to offer. As Jesus said, you don't have to store up treasures on earth where they can be stolen, where they can rust and decay or or be lost in a bad business venture. Your treasure is Jesus Christ and he is awaiting you in heaven. And he says, this is the secret to contentment. This morning the Lord has given us a beautiful, visible reminder of these realities in the Lord's Supper. In John 6, he connected the bread of the Lord's Supper with the manna that Israel received in the wilderness. And that means we're supposed to remember what Israel learned in the wilderness through that manna. And you'll remember that God never gave Israel more than they needed, nor less than they needed. Just enough for the day. If they tried to store it up, it would rot. Worms would eat it. If they tried to find security and hoarding, it would spoil. They had to learn to be content with each day's provision and rest in God for what he would bring tomorrow. That's part of the message of the Lord's Supper. But Jesus goes beyond that. After connecting it to to the manna, He goes on and he says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, he says he doesn't just have the living water, he is the living water. So if you have him, you have eternal life. If you have him, your spiritual thirst is satisfied. As you take the wine and you drink it, you remember just as physical thirst has to be quenched, so does spiritual thirst in Jesus alone can quench it. And how do you possess him? He answers that by believing in him, by placing your trust in him, by surrendering yourself to him. 
One final thing, the Lord's Supper doesn't just speak to these things. God calls it a seal, something that you affix to a promise to bind yourself to keep it. The Lord's Supper is God's oath. It is His promise, it is His pledge that if you place your trust in Him, your thirst has been satisfied and you have all you need, not just for this life, but for that which is to come. And so if you feel like you're dying of thirst, surrounded by an ocean of false promises that only leave you more thirsty than you started, stop your striving and look to Jesus. And in Him, find the water of life. And in Him, never thirst again. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive the Lord's Supper today. Please join me in prayer. All-knowing God, you know our every thought, our every temptation, our foolish pursuits, the vain things in which we place our hope. But despite all of this, you show us kindness in Jesus Christ, for you have given more in Him than we could ever dream of. When we lose our focus on Him, forgive us and bring our eyes back. Teach us to delight in Him, and in Him let us learn to eat and drink and enjoy all that you have called us to. We look forward to the day when our toils will cease and we will know what it means to enter into your rest for all eternity. And even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.